Hello, and welcome to I Am Dad podcast with your fatherhood authority, Kenneth Braswell. 30 minutes of wisdom, information, resources, and nuggets to help you on your fatherhood journey. Or maybe you're just curious and want to hear some real talk about fatherhood, family, and the minds of men. Well, guess what? We got you too. Sit back, grab your pad and pen, and maybe even bring a little something to sip on. Enjoy 30 straight minutes of fatherhood, family, and fun with the fatherhood authority. Kenneth Braswell. Welcome to I Am Dad Podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Braswell, and thank you for joining us again on another episode of I Am Dad Podcast as we continue to have great conversations around responsible fatherhood, family, parenting, and all of that good stuff that we don't get a huge chance to talk about a lot. I get the pleasure each and every week to talk to pillars of the field and talk to legends and giants of the field who also happen to be personal friends, just like this young man who's on my screen today. He is Mr. Nigel Van. Um, Nigel is the product development lead for the National Responsible Fatherhood Clearinghouse. Um, he's worked as a manager, trainer, and consultant with fatherhood, with fatherhood programs since 1988, including major projects in both the U.S. and U.K. Um, he has been with the NRFC since 2008 and with Fathers Incorporated as an independent count, um, consultant since 2016. He oversees um, the development of NRFC products and webinars and the main author of the Responsible Fatherhood Toolkit, which you can find on www.fatherhood.gov backslash toolkit and a series of tip cards for practitioners and fathers. Um, he has also visited and provided assistance to fatherhood programs in 45 states, facilitated more than 80 staff trainings, uh, presented at numerous conferences, worked on four major responsible fatherhood demonstration projects and four international fatherhood projects and has written 12 published articles. Let me just say this, that little bio don't say anywhere near enough about this guy. Um, he is, I don't know if you remember the first time um, I met you. Uh, we were in, um, I believe, Albuquerque, New Mexico. I think that's where we were. And we um, met before then, but that—that that was when I was on board with um, Father Zing, right? That's when we went to that Native American conference. Oh, this was going back further. This was before. Oh, I, oh, I, this oh okay. Way, well, I don't remember then. Yeah. Okay, this is. Well, I yeah. think I was with. I don't know if I was with New York State yet. I might have just come on board. Um, I think we might have just got the contract with the clearinghouse at the time, and I was in. Um, we were there. I believe it was New. Um, Albuquerque and we were talking we were in the same space and we went to lunch I don't know if you remember we us you and I going to lunch um, and we went to lunch and you and I had a long conversation and I got to get to hear um, the work that you're doing you were actually with NFI at the time so it was before we got the contract um, okay and we were talking about your work I think you would remember that I actually think I have a picture of you and I there uh, with, I don't know why I don't remember. Lunch should stick, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, we had a long, and it was a long lunch too. It wasn't like a short like lunch. We were actually in that restaurant for a really long time just talking about this work. And so... Was that one of those um, federal li listening sessions that they would do in out of the White House? 
I can't remember. Uh, to be honest with you, I got to go back through my, you know, because I keep yeah. a record of all of my activities. And so I have to go back to look at my activity sheet to see why I was there. I mean, I could actually tell okay. you today <laughs> that I was there, Ben, when I go back to my activity okay. sheet. Um, okay, yeah, I'd be interested. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, going mm-hmm. all the way back to everything. I could tell you everywhere I've been, everywhere I've spoken, everywhere I've presented since like 2003. I could actually go back to 1996. It's a little scattered. I could tell you everything I've written, you know, through there. I've always documented everything that I've done. Um, so when it's ready for me to write this book that I want to write on my work in the fatherhood space, I can't, got something that I could go back to recall on with respect to where I've been and what I've done. Um, yeah, I've, I've got stuff in boxes in the basement that I, I actually started going through it last year and I threw some of it away I was sort of reticent to. But yeah, it does bring back memories of where you were and what you were doing. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit. Walk me through how you got involved in the fatherhood work. Well, you want the short, the medium, or the long? Um, give, me, give it to me. Give it to me. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, the, the miracle of all this, from my perspective, is that I even got to America, right? You know, I mean, I got to America because I met this guy who was a professor of sociology. I was living in Spain. I was just doing odd jobs, washing dishes, painting walls, you know. So I'd spent about four years traveling around Europe doing blue-collar work and factories and driving the truck and stuff, and I didn't know what I was doing, right? But I'd got, a, I'd got an undergraduate degree in sociology. So this guy was on holiday in Spain. I don't even remember talking to him about sociology, but about six months later, he sends me this formal letter offering me a um, position on the master's program at East Tennessee State University and a teaching assistantship. They didn't pay a lot of money. I still had to work part-time in a factory. Um, anyway, that's how I got over here. Uh, met my first wife there. We moved to Tucson, where she got her doctorate in sociology. I, I never wrote my dissertation. I never finished it. Um, but I taught sociology for the best part of 10 years. But then we moved to Baltimore because uh, she got a job as a professor there at Loyola College. And um, a colleague of hers. So for the first six months there, I was basically um, stayed home dad for six months, which was beautiful because my kid was, he was... Um, he turned three during that period, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, a colleague of hers heard about this job with the Department of Human Resources to manage a program called the Absent Parents Employment Program. So um, I go along for an interview. I'm the only one that even talking to about this position. So, you know, you talk about nepotism or knowing the right people <laughs> or falling into the right place, right? right. So... Um, I thought, yeah, this this will be pretty cool. Right? You know, I'd, I'd been teaching academically, and um, my main sort of interest um, academically was always um, social inequality and what causes it. Um, and um, felt like I had a pretty good handle on working class life because um, I'd spent a lot of time doing all these different jobs and felt like I could interact with anybody you know, irrespective of social class, but, um, and had gotten turned off by the whole ivory tower thing of, um, academia and having to publish. So I thought, oh, this will be fun. I'll get involved in this state government project, right. Um, which was a bit of an eye opener in terms of how government works. And, but, um, you know, this program had been started because two local judges were seeing guys in their child support court 
um, who weren't paying their child support. They couldn't pay their child support. So the only recourse these judges had was to throw the guys in jail. And so the two judges, um, one of whom was David Gray Ross, who went on to head the federal child support system a few years later. And this is in two different counties in Maryland, Harford and Prince George's. So they went to the state and said, look, this is ridiculous. You know, these guys, I stick them in prison. There's no way they're going to pay child support. So I need to help, help them get a job. I need to be able to refer them somewhere. So, you know, this essentially was an employment program and it was operated through the state employment agency. And so I was just hired to oversee this. So I spent a lot of time on each of the sites and tracked the research because I had a bit of a research background from sociology and wrote some basic reports on it. Um, but in the course of that, um, I started looking around the country to see what other fatherhood programs are out there. So this is like 1988, 89, right? Mm -hmm. um, and um, the Children's Defense Fund had written something called um, What About the Dads? They've been doing a lot of work with teenage pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So I pick up this short report it's got a list of all the programs that had been in the um, Bank Street Teen Father Demonstration Project of the early 80s. So I start calling around these agencies um, and three or four of the programs were still in operation. There was one in California that is, the last I heard they were still working with fathers actually. They've gone through different funding cycles and there was a program out of a hospital in Philadelphia. Um, so I. I talked to people there and a couple of other places. And then I went to a conference in Chicago that was put on by um, Parents Too Soon, who were, were doing a lot of work with teen mothers, right? but they had a whole track for teen dads. So I went to all those sessions and in every room, you know, you had to introduce yourself. And in every room I'm looking around and I, I'm, I'm meeting people who I've been talking to on the phone, right? So all of a sudden, I'm hearing this network of people who are doing this work, right, you know. Uh, one of the people I met was um, Bernadine Watson, who I had spoken to on the phone. She worked for Public Private Ventures. They were planning a um, Young Unwed Fathers pilot project with funding from Ford Foundation, Charles Stewart Mott, a bunch of other smaller foundations, um, and E. Casey Foundation, I think, were involved and federal programs, um, Department of Labor, Child Sport for sure, maybe Department of Justice, but and I think um, housing as well, HUD. Mm -hmm. there, was, there was a bunch of funders anyway, you know, to, to do this project. So they, um, they got me on an advisory panel for this um, project as they were planning it. So I went to a few meetings in Philadelphia I'm living in Baltimore, right? Um, that's um, so. Then, um, then eventually, six months or a year later, they offer me a job um, to be a program officer on this new Young Unwed Fathers project, right? Which is getting ready to start. They've issued the RFP, um, but I say um, um, I need to turn this off, right? Yeah, no, you. So. That's that's when uh, this this is around. What year? What year is this? This is um, when they offered me the job is um, nineteen ninety. Okay, nineteen ninety. Okay. So 
I turned it down twice because I'm, I'm living in Baltimore, right? Philadelphia's a long way away. But eventually, um, third time of asking, I finally realized, you know, I, I got to do this. So, um, you know, talked it over with my first wife. Um, and so then I spent the next four and a half years um, riding the train back and forth to Philadelphia. Uh, first met Ron Mincy in the course of all that because um, I was presenting at an early meeting when we brought the six sites together and there's this chap in the back of the room who's um, keeps asking all these awkward questions, right, you know, and so I'm having to redirect, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to impress the um, vice president of PPV who doesn't really know me. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I think I did pretty good because after that he treated me a bit differently. But I ended up riding in a car back with Ron and um, a young lad from one of the programs in Annapolis because the trains weren't working when we got to the train station because, you know, Ron was living just outside of Baltimore. So anyway, the three of us ended up um, renting a car to drive home. So I get an hour and a half in the car with Ron Mincy, you know, ideas bouncing off the... Um, I think that, you know, that, that was a sort of pivotal moment for me in a way that I... It took me even deeper into this work and, uh, you know, from... Anyway, from the, the point of doing that project, I, you know, it just has become what I do. And uh, after the project wound down, we had this curriculum we developed. So, um, you know, I'd essentially been providing technical assistance to these sites. What did I know, right? You know, I, I'd managed this little program in Maryland, but what we were doing was a much bigger scope. Um, but I'd been doing a lot of reading and research and meeting people and talking to people who are doing stuff. And um, essentially that's, what I've done for the last 34 years, right? You know, I've, I've met people who do the real work in the trenches and I've sort of learned what they're doing. And then I'll be talking to somebody else and I'll say, oh, well, you should try what Joe Blow's doing over there, you know, or did you know there's another program in your city? Which so often people don't or didn't, right? You know, so I was connecting people. Um, and um, after that project finished, then um did a lot of, training in that curriculum with Pam Wilson and Jeff Johnson. And eventually that led to the Ford Foundation setting up um, MPCL and and ENCOF, which was the research arm out of Philadelphia. And um, and then um, David Pate's organization, which I'm blanking on the name of, you know, so that was the policy arm of it. So there was a policy arm and research arm and we were the training and delivery arms. So we got to do those trainings um, all around the country and met met a lot of great people who have since gone on to play pivotal roles in the field. You know, that's how I met uh, Ron Clark, um, Hal Sullivan, Wallace McLaughlin was setting up his program in Indianapolis. He came to visit us in Philadelphia and spent a couple of days with the Philadelphia site. and. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, a lot of history. <clears throat> yeah, it's it's been it's been a cool journey. So every now and then I sort of shake my head and think, how the <laughs> hell did I get here from the beach in Spain, right? You know. <laughs> As we allow you to sunset a little bit, hopefully you take some of that time and begin to start scribing your own book. Um, and I, you know, I'm going to continue to encourage you to do that. Um, you should begin to start writing. Um, about those experiences. There's a lot of information and a lot of, of connecting of the dots that people, particularly 
newer folks that are coming into the space need to know, you know, where this thing started from and how it got started and so that folks aren't recreating the will. One of the things, Nigel, I don't know, we've probably had this conversation, but I don't recall it. So I'm going to ask you today so that I can make sure that this is part of the narratives that I have in my system when I'm going out there talking is I don't think I've ever heard your father's story. What's your daddy's story? Oh, okay, sure. Um, well, I, you know, I mean, I, I was very fortunate to have an involved father, for sure. Um, but, I, you know, my father was um, of an older generation. You know, he'd served in World War II. Um, he um, grew up in a very Methodist home um, that was quite strict. So he was quite strict with me as the first of three. So mm -hmm. I fought a few battles with my dad, you know, particularly into the teenage years. Um, he was... He became a Methodist minister after the Second World War. He was an accountant before the war, but then wanted to make a difference after the war. Um, and um, so we certainly butted heads about church, you know. I mean, I, I became a member of the church, but then I got to a certain stage where I didn't see much point in it, I, you know. And, um, and I, oh, and I was, I, yeah, I was playing on this um, football soccer team on a Sunday morning, and you know, he told me I couldn't do it because it was Sunday. So <laughs> it got to the point where I was hiding my kit over at a friend's house and going over there to get the kit and going to play, right? You know, mm -hmm. so, um, so, so we, we had a couple of rough years there, really. But um, after that, he 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 sort of mellowed, um, you know, he. My younger siblings had a easier job than I did. I sort of paved the way for them. But um, he, he lived to be 85, and I'm very glad he did because, um, you know, we, we got to be closer as he got older. Um, and he certainly, he, he was a role model for me. I mean, he, he, he worked too hard, which I ended up doing. I remember my son saying to me one day, you know, even though I'm working at home a lot, he said, Dad, you're always working. And, you know, I always thought I was lazy. Um, but... Um, because my dad was always out, you know, he was meeting people, he was going to meetings, he was going to see old folk and see how they were doing, and then had to lock himself in his study to write his lecture. But he still, you know, he, he took us to football matches, we we played games. Um, he um, he always wanted to win, he would he would cheat a little bit sometimes. You know? <laughs> but yeah, so, he, and you know, and I, I see a lot of him in me now, actually, I mean, I. I would not have been standing on stage talking to people as a youngster, but um, that's what my dad did. And um, so there's times now when I'm sort of um, weaving a story to make a point that I sort of see him in his sermons doing that. And um, he would, you know, he'd walk down the street and um, talk to anybody he saw, basically. And um, I, I know I tend to do a little bit of that as well. I, I get my wife sort of dragging me off because I've stopped talking. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know. no, it's, it's, a, it's a good daddy story. You know, I, I've got a good daddy story. And one of the things that I've sort of taken into the work is that when realizing when you don't have that safe place to go home to, mm -hmm. that uh, it just makes life that, you know, so much harder. And so to me, that's the essence of a lot of this fatherhood work, helping guys to work. Because so, so many guys that we see in the fatherhood programs, as you know, didn't have that safe space, right, you know. Um, and so everyone has to process it in their own way, but so many men don't process it. So 
when we give them a safe space to process it and um, really work through that and talk about it with others and then you know realize the value of creating that safe space for their own kids um, even if they're not in the home with the kids yeah so um, and all of your children are grown now um, when you think about the work and all the things that you've learned throughout the 34 years um, how much of that shaped the kind of father you are Oh, a lot, yeah, because, you know, my son, I've only got the one. My son was um, two and a half, three. No, he was just over three when I, you know, he was born in January 85. I started the work in April 88. So he was three years old when I started doing this. And um, so I'm still learning how to be a father then, <laughs> right? And, um, yeah, so I, I definitely started looking at fathering differently. Um, particularly when I got divorced from his mother, which is he was 11 then, 11 or 12, 12, um, which was the hardest thing I've done. You know, I fought that for a couple of years. You know, I probably should have gone along with it earlier, but I, I had told him, you know, there's, there's no way we're going to break this family up because I, I didn't, I thought that was going to be harmful for him, right? Although in the end, I realized it was more harmful to, to live in a household where, you know, things weren't quite right so but although I was so angry at one point and I can see how guys get you know backed into I want custody I want I want full custody right you know and, and I'm not paying child support and all this kind of stuff but the, the, I think the biggest thing I haven't done the work for me was um I knew not to go there right, right you know and he'd come home and um because, we, you know, we, we ended up having a very good co-parenting relationship and Jesse came back and forth between us and because I was traveling a lot for work then. He was basically with me when I was home and not with me when I wasn't. So, in fact, sometimes I had to make sure he went over there when I was home just so it didn't become, you know, you only go there when I'm not here kind of thing. But we, <laughs> we worked that out. But I do remember times when he'd come home and, um, you know, he'd say, oh, Mum did this, mum did that, you know, and, um, you know, he's, he's sort of blaming her for a lot of what had gone wrong. And I, I had to bite my tongue a lot. Um, and it was certainly a two way street, you know, I, I did not, I made it quite clear, it wasn't just her, but, you know, he'd say something about her that I agreed with, mm -hmm. but I, I would, wouldn't say I did, you know, so that that was a lesson. And not to ask, um, you know, what she was doing with other relationships and that kind of thing. So, had I not been doing the work, um, yeah, that, I'm sure that would have all played out a bit differently. Yeah, mm -hmm. Of course, I always think, well, if I hadn't spent four and a half years going back and forth on the train to Philadelphia, maybe things would have been better at home. You, know? <laughs> uh, you can't sit and guess yourself all that way, you know, but it, it, it turned out for the best in the end. But I, I certainly, um, for several years afterwards, um, was worried that we'd done him harm. It was, a bad, it was a bad time to get divorced in terms of um age development stages of growth and stuff you know but he's assured me many times since that we did okay <laughs> yeah. yeah what does he think of your work today um i think he's um he's pretty proud actually you know you, you gave me two copies of the toolkit which i asked you i actually need to have you give me a couple more because you, you told me i would need more I, I gave one to him and i gave the other one to pam wilson so i haven't got one anymore <laughs> of the full one you know um yeah. So no, and, and I used to take him to um, conferences, and um, 
you know, he, he met Joe Jones and um, Patrick Patterson. He met the two of them on a, um, I remember that we were on the bus from the airport to um, Disneyland. We were, it was a California conference at Disneyland. And so um, he's, you know, he, he met Joe quite a lot at different places. Um, he, um, he, he would, um, you know, I would take him to some of the one day workshops I was doing in the area. So he, he's, you know, you got to sit in the room and hear some of this stuff. And there was one time, um, right before I was finishing high school and going off to, um, university that, um, you know, that they, they'd finished all the schoolwork, right? So he said, I, I really don't want to go to school dad today. There was a big soccer game, English soccer game on TV. And I said, well, you can't stay home, but you can come with me. I was going down to um, do a training somewhere in Northern Virginia just for the half a day, I guess, you know. So I said, come with me, and then on the way back, we'll, we'll stop and watch it in a bar somewhere. And so we did, you know. Um, so that, that was very cool. Yeah, but he, he sat in the back of the room for that, and I, I remember, I don't remember what I said, but I remember um, saying something about him, you know, to the training and you know I, it sort of made sense in the training session and right. sort of said um, something about yeah i don't remember what i said but it was a it was something that he he took you know so i, I said something positive to him that um was cool to have him in the room to hear it in that setting you know and he also knew very well that um you didn't want to become a father when you were too young <laughs> so, uh, yeah. so it worked so, out right so it worked out that way too yeah huh? yeah 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 no he saw what happens if you if you have a kid in your teens or early 20s even you know yeah yeah that's yeah. a good i even think about that i'm thinking about my two girls now that they they're not even thinking about children at all and i'm now as you say that wondering because yeah. oftentimes they were in room yeah. i would take them places and they've heard me speak they've been in the background when i've done trainings and talking and having meetings and those kinds of things and i'm wondering whether or not some of that has resonated with them which is i'm not trying to be a parent right now i'm going to you know my oldest one now is oh well my middle one is 28 and my youngest one is 24. Uh, one is in deep into her business and the other one is living her best life. And they're, you know, they're, and, and I look at them sometimes and I'm envious of them. I'm like, wow. I was like, man, I wonder what it must feel like to be in your 20s and be untethered, you know, to be able to yeah, yeah. play yeah. your teams out, make mistakes, be supportive, have fun at the same time and just live your life and wait for life to come to you as opposed to getting caught up where you have to be grown too quick. And so, yeah, yeah, and, and you know they've soaked all that up. You know, I mean they, they they hear and see everything we do, right? So you know, just the way you show respect to people, you know, particularly to Tracy, you know, mm-hmm. um, that 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 sends a, a distinct message, you know, and just the way you live your life, you know, if you if you like, you know, one of the things I did, I probably took my son into too many English pubs when we went to England, but it was always to have lunch and just a drink, you know, with my parents as well, uh-huh. like, you know, so, so he, he never saw me um, drink too much, right. which was another thing when I got divorced, you know, I made a big, um, you know, I, I was very clear that I didn't even have any alcohol in the house, you know, I, I wasn't going to be the, the dad that got drunk, you know, but yeah. Right, creating a whole bunch of other different problems. 
So when you yeah. look back over the span of your 34 years, you know, I often tell people, you know, I've only been in, you know, this in 2024 will be our, my 20th anniversary, which I plan to do some big celebration around it. But when you look back 34 years, and I always talk to people about what the fatherhood field looked like um, in 2003, um, 2004, um, that it was a stark difference in 2003 to today. I can only imagine what the difference was from 88 to today. When you look over the span of those 34 years, what has been some of the most significant changes that you've seen in the space? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's been some big changes. That there's, you know, there's, there's some areas where there's not been enough change, for sure. But uh, I think one thing is you don't have to make the case as much for why it's important for dads to be involved. You know, I remember one of the um, very first conferences I presented at was, um, wasn't Head Start, but it was, um, the, the, the room was full of women anyway, right? That there, there were no males there at all. Um, and I, I'm there to talk about, um, why they should be working with fathers and i'm just getting these blank looks like why are you on the schedule you know and then <laughs> that was that was somewhere out west i think yeah but i i also remember being at a regional child sport conference I, I think maybe in the atlanta area but uh this was early days as well and there um again a, a lot of blank looks but that there were there were some people who got it, and there were some people in both audiences who got it right and would come up and talk to you afterwards. But nowadays, I don't feel I have to sort of make such a case. Right? It's an easier sell because people have heard it more and more. So that that is one of the, the bigger things. Um, you know, there's there's more programs nowadays, but there's still not the infrastructure we need, right? You know, in in the when I first got involved, you know, I told you I. I read about those eight or nine programs that have been the Bank Street thing, and so I'm, I'm coming along. What, um, six, seven years after that had finished, and only three or four of the nine were still in operation, mm. and those, at least one of them disappeared. You know, I think two of them have kept going over the years, but you, you, you we always saw these funding cycles come and go. Um, so, so now we have the federal funding stream, so there's more funding, right? But there's less foundation funding than there was. Um, in, in the past, there was, you know, the, the national foundations were stepping up and playing a, a big role, so, but only for demonstration projects, so it was short term. Right. So the, you know, the, the field was building, right? And, and we've learned things. So I, I think one of the bigger things now is you don't have to reinvent the wheel as much. Mm -hmm. We've still got learning curves in areas like um, co-parenting, mental health. Um, but, but, but a lot of the, yeah, that's, so, so the field has obviously grown, but it's, it's still restricted by rules and regulations, right? You know, we've still got this child support system that, that has come a long way. It is um, in a lot of places. It's not, um, you know, it's now 
it's child support um, services they're talking about rather than um, being so sort of negative about things. So there's more positive things, you know, the child support do recognize the importance of engaging debts, but still ultimately it's about raising money, right? And um, still well, there's... You can't change the, you might be able to change your perspective, but you can't change the mission. The mission is what the mission is. And that's what I keep saying yeah. to yeah. child support people until you, you know, the, your primary mission and all of the infrastructure around that mission and the performance goals are around collection and child support programs and services only benefit a dad who's able to continue to pay child support because once he can't then the enforcement mechanisms come into play and yeah. so and then when you have these states with the big, bigger rearages you know and an interest on the rearage, um, that's when you just put guys in a hole. I mean, right. um, and so you have to reconcile that you were established to do a particular thing. And now you're trying not to do that thing, but you're still grounded. Everything that you do, your infrastructure, your policies and everything is grounded in why you were created in the first place. And I think people aren't there yet i don't think that we've articulated the conversation that's where you know i have chosen to kind of play a role um most recently in spaces of these very difficult subject matters that we have not been able to have because no one wants to take the time to figure out what's the best way to talk about them when you think about the fatherhood space now what do you think some of the most biggest challenges are in being able to provide services to dads the larger social fabric and structure in which we live, right? You know, we can, you can empower a guy, you, you know, you can do what I said before about um, helping a guy go on a journey to process where he's been and where he's going and what he wants to do for his kids. But if he can't get a decent job, um, if he can't get a situation where he can manage his child support, you know, if he's paying 70, 80% of whatever income he's got in child support, because um, the child support order's not been set right or not taken into account his situation. Um, so, and, and also you've got, you know, you've got the racism and social class inequalities that are out there. You've got guys who've got generational burdens that they're coming through with. Um, so a program can do so much, right? And a program can do it for so many people. So I think of um, programs like Anthem in um, Dallas, right? You, you know, we, we um, spent some time out there a few years ago and doing such a good job to help these guys, a lot of who had only recently come out of prison but they're, they're dealing in a, an environment where there's there's not a lot of jobs. Um, parole and probation was pretty restrictive on what the guys could do and couldn't do. Um, so even if you help those guys and, and just the way those guys talk, I mean, this is one of the things I think that um, kept me doing this work all these years is, um, you know, I'd be dragging myself to an airport to go off and do a training session somewhere or go do some TA with a program. 
And I'm thinking, you know, geez, I really don't want to be going away right now. I need to be at home, you know. Mm. But then when you get there and you see, you know, that the the passion that's going on from the staff and the impact it's having on the fathers and um, how these guys are articulating what they've been talking about in the program and how they're passing that on to other people, not just guys in the program, but friends and also interacting differently with people in their lives mm -hmm. um, to the best that they can, you know, and, and when they fail to do it as well as they want to be doing it, they can identify that and they can say, I'm sorry, or they can back up and rethink it, take it back to the program and talk about, well, you know, I got in this argument with the mother of my child and I don't quite understand how to move this forward, right? But you can bounce it back off each other. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm not quite sure if I went the right way there for what you just asked me. But, yeah, you um, did. You did. Yeah, you okay. did. You know, we were talking about some of the biggest challenges and you're right. You know, some of those things are still, and I think it's in the narrative. I think it's that, you know, one of the other challenges is the, is the instability of the discipline in and of itself with respect to infrastructure. You're talking about, you know, that we are still not a um, integral part of the social service work of America, right? And we continue to be talked about like an aside, like it's social work, oh, and fatherhood. It's not a part, hasn't become a part of the conversation. Therefore, it hasn't been interwoven into everything else that we talk about. With respect to social work, and more importantly, it's not being taught that way in schools of social work, you know, where yes, absolutely. are getting yeah. degrees, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because really, you know, and we say this a lot when I worked at MPCL, um, you know, we should be working to put ourselves out of business. Right. We shouldn't have to have fatherhood programs, right? We should have family support programs that embrace the whole family. And, and dad is seen as a part of that, you know, if there's a issue with um, child protection and the child welfare agency and if you know if dad's not living in the home but there's an issue in the home where the children need to be taken out of that situation for a while somebody should be knowing where the dad is and giving dad a chance to step up right um, and you know there is some work going on in the child welfare field right where that's happening more now but um it's not happening enough um and then in the you know you've got work like healthy start and head start where you're working with the family and there's much more emphasis on involving dad but it's still got a long way to go you know and because head start was always said you know you have to try and engage fathers but there's never been any funds specifically for that right so if you've got a budget this is what you do, right. but that budget, you know, was set up when you were working mainly with mothers and children. Mm -hmm. Then, where do you get the resources to to do what you need to do with dads too? Yeah, mm -hmm. so. yeah and that's what you know. That's what the challenge is with them now. You know, across the Head Start space, the Healthy Start programs, um, and other agencies that are trying to do the right thing, but again, there's no infrastructure. There's no association that's pulling the field together and impacting policy and impacting 
funding sources. And I love what you said earlier, because I didn't even think about that. And you're absolutely right. There's more government funding, but there's less foundation funding. And so with the less foundation money, you don't get a chance to explore and evolve and experiment and do things that you may not be able to do um, with federal, state, or local monies. The other thing, Nigel, that I think is a big challenge that we have to figure out how to address as well, because it pops up all over the place, and that, that is this kind of um, the, the fear factor around fatherhood in the um, in the marginal spaces, right? And so when we talk about domestic violence and child abuse and those kinds of things as reasons that we should not be working with fathers, or we talk about, um, or they use definitions like deadbeat and they, they, they use these fear factor conversations to deter people from wanting to work with fathers as if that represents the dominant population of fathers when it doesn't. Those dads mm -hmm. are in the margins. They're in very small margins of the work, but it's a burden that the vast majority of fathers have to carry because that's being used as a reason not to do and forward this work. And so we have to have conversations right around that. I'm now beginning to, um, and we'll be uplifting this conversation even more over the next six months to a year around this term that I'm going to build on parental conflict. Right. And so parental conflict is where two parents do not have the ability to communicate and or work with each other because of whatever the reasons are. And those conflicts are having an adverse effect on the children, the well-being of their children. So it's different from parent from uh, parental alienation, which is a subset of that. But parental alienation is as a result of parental conflict. And there's all types of things that happen, you described earlier, that as your relationship was going through what your relationship was, you made a conscious decision not to have alcohol in your home because you did not want to become that guy who came home drunk. That conflict could have created a situation where one or both parents could then start using substances to take away the pain and now having an impact. So this whole notion of parental conflict is what's stimulating all of the things that are below. And we have to really begin to start figuring out how do we equip couples, parents in particular, to resolve conflict so that those conflicts don't create these other things. So when you see the tragic headlines like we just saw some time ago, um, and we see them every day, uh, you know, parents murdering their children because they got into a fight over child support, moms killing the father because they couldn't get, you know, just, just all of these very difficult subject matters to absorb because they're so heinous. But at the same time, you know that those things are still happening in the margins. That's not the vast majority of what's happening in our space in that space, but they drive the headlines. And so on all kinds of other levels that's happening in our spaces, but not to the extent that someone is going to go that far. And all of it has to do with parental conflict. It's one's inability to be able to resolve conflict with each other, to be able to do what they need to do as parents. And so 
um, I'm going to be leaning extremely hard in building this conversation around taking closer looks at how um, I have this belief that um, the healthy marriage and healthy relationship side of our work should be integrated with fatherhood stuff. I understand the premise to which they're trying to come from, which is the best ecosystem for a child to not be impoverished and to be successful is within a marriage, with, is within a married home. I get it. I, I get how marriage creates successful blah, 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 blah. But that's not the only success sequence. And we got to be able to kind of start talking to parents and couples on how they build their relationships, resolve conflict, create goals, um, understand morals and values so that whatever sequence they take in their life's journey, that children come out better on the other end. And so mm -hmm. um, I think that that is a challenge that no one has talked about. We don't want to talk about because nobody wants to talk about domestic violence. They want to talk about child abuse or child abuse. They don't want to talk about parental alienation. We don't want to, you know, to be honest with you, think about it. We barely want to talk about child support. Like <laughs> we want to talk about it, but we don't really want to talk about it. Um, mm. you know, because once you start deeply um, diving into the conversation of child support, there's a lot of things you have to address. You got to address the biasness in courts. You got to address, you know, um, you got to address um, custody. You got to address parenting time. You got to address jobs. You got to address um, conflict, um, domestic. You got to address all of those things, you know, all mm -hmm. of those things um, are stimulated sometimes by, you know, guys not it's very clear, you know, that the more stable you are, the more apt you are to pay your child support. Simple as that, you know, yeah. right? Yeah, it goes back to what those two judges said, you know, back in <laughs> Maryland, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, and it goes back to what, what you were saying as well, that when you brought up and we sort of talked about how all the social inequality, the system in which we live, there's all these stresses on us, right? That's and that's impacting a lot of the guys in the margins as well yeah mm -hmm. but there are people who are interacting with them but if they're stereotyping all guys like that uh, which is certainly true you know of um some programs that work mainly with mothers um some domestic violence programs and one of the things you made me think about it is um those are conversations that we need to keep having because Absolutely. we'll have conversations with key leaders in these different areas, but then they move on, right? right. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, I've seen that in child support agencies. I've seen that with, with domestic violence programs, right? They, they have an infrastructure that's now much more father friendly, but then a key person leaves, new staff are coming in, and there's no one to really keep it going, yeah? So it starts fading out. So you've got to, that's why somehow we have to sort of institutionalize that fathers are part of this, right? And we, you know, yes, there's some bad apples, but there's some bad apples on all sides. Yeah. And everything, um, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Every crate, and and they, and they need some help too, but we've got to give them a different kind of help. There's a different kind of conversation. Yeah. But, Fine. Yeah. When you look over the course of your career, what's the proudest thing you've done? What's the thing that you've done that you've most that you're most proud of? Woo. Um, 
Well, maybe writing that responsible father toolkit, you know, you, you said I've got to write this book. Um, and I, you know, part of the history of the field is in there, but that's a very sort of small take on that. So I, I yeah. Um, so that's, um, that's and, and I, many. I, I think absolutely the, right. That is your book. That is your, that's, yeah. you, listen, don't, I, I, you've just changed my mind about how I think about that toolkit. You're absolutely right. Cause when I give it to people, they are like, wow, where'd you, you know, when did you guys do this? Where did this come from? It's like, yeah, we have not done a great job at moving this thing out here. Um, and we're going to do a better job at making people know that this thing exists. But I'm of the school that, you know, you know, when we got locked down where you couldn't print anybody and you couldn't give anybody a manual in their hand, you know, there's not very many manuals, if any manual that come through my life that I read online. It just doesn't happen. It's, 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 yeah, it's yeah. Um, and so you got to be able to put that thing in people's hands. Um, and then we got to start building presentations and building education modules and workbooks and all of those things as a result of the toolkit. The toolkit should be birthing all of these other products that are associated with it. So it becomes the core piece. But all of these other things are actually bringing this thing alive. Um, thanks for that. I have to think a little more, you know, about what that looks like. But so we're going to be forcing you to talk, write your second book. So your first one is already done. Now we got to get to your second one. But outside of that one, like, what is the thing that you've done? Out, give me something else outside of that. Yeah, that yeah. Problem. Well, you know, I'm not sure pride's the right idea, but, but what I've enjoyed, right? I mean, I, I, I more than anything, I enjoyed learning how to do training sessions from Pam Wilson, who was, you know, the best person I've ever seen in front of a group. So for the longest time, I was just sort of managing our training and I was setting it up and I was there in the room, but I wasn't leading it, right, you know? And then um, the, the last two or three years I was with MPCL, we had a much lower budget, so we didn't have as many trainers. So I ended up doing a lot of these three-day trainings on my own, which had always been two people, right? Um, so the first time I had to do that on my own, I think I was in Grand Rapids, Michigan, somewhere like that. Um, and I remember prepping, you know, for hours the night before. So, so it's three days, you know. And, I've done this before, but I've only done bits of it, right? You know, I've done all bits of it, but always with somebody else. So, and then getting through that and, um, but it wasn't even, it wasn't a chore getting through, but it just flowed, right? Because I knew it so well. Um, and getting a lot of kudos from people in that group. And um, I think that's when I really took off as a trainer. So I, you know, I absolutely enjoyed training. I enjoyed going to all these different programs, um, and meeting the people, like I said, and, and the other big thing for me was getting to go over and do this work in England, right? Um, you know, I had, um, the only time I'd done any kind of white collar work in England, I spent, um, part of a summer vacation, um, while I was actually waiting for my school results that was going to let me go to university. I was working in this accountant's office and, you know, I mentioned my dad used to be an accountant. So after I finished university, he always thought I should be, be an accountant or go into banking or something, right? That would be a good, solid career. But I, based on my experience working in that accountant's office, I'm good with numbers, I could do it, right? But I, I didn't want to be 
that guy, you know, wearing a tie, going to an office cubicle every day or whatever. So, so I spent several years, you know, working in factories, driving delivery trucks and stuff. Um, so I'd never done a proper job in England, right? You know, I, I was 26 years old when I came over to this country. So I go back, um, and this is all through Ford Foundation funding. So I, I go back over there, and um, I, I the, the, the first time, you know, I was working for MPCL, and I say to Jeff Johnson, um, Jeff, I need an extra week's holiday over there. And he said, well, I can't, I can't give you a week's holiday. Um, you know, I wanted to go for three weeks rather than two weeks. Mm-hmm. So he said, but go over there and do, do a bit of work over there, you know, go find out what's going on over there, which I had been doing a little bit of anyway. So anyway, I spent that week going around meeting key people. That's when mm-hmm. I first met um, Adrian Burgess, who's, you know, with the father of the Institute now. Mm-hmm. So, so I actually, I helped Adrienne and her team sort of think through what Father's Direct was going to be. I went to meetings with them in um, various offices in the government. And so we, we sat down and had cups of tea and biscuits, you know, what you guys call cookies. Um, <laughs> going, um, I got to go in number 10 Downing Street because um, when Ron Mincy was at the Ford Foundation, he had this um, African diaspora project. So he was looking at the impact of slavery and, you know, blacks going to these different countries and being colonized and how, how that impacted family structure, right? You know, so I, um, I went over to England a couple of times just to meet people in the Afro-Caribbean community working with men, young boys, right? And sort of set up this meeting for Ron to come over and meet with some of these key people. And one of the key people that he met with was um, the policy advisor for Tony Blair when Tony Blair was prime minister. Um, can't remember the guy's name. It was Jeff something, I think. But um, so, but but so so we got to go in the number ten Downing Street, which is a lot bigger than the door you see when the prime minister comes out and waves at the press. You know, there's a whole big other thing where the, where there's offices and stuff. So we, that's where we were. We weren't in the other bit, but. Um, so I'm having cups of tea in there, and um, I'm listening to this guy, Jeff, I think, and Ron, um, having this really high-powered conversation that I'm not really a part of, right? But I, I've made it happen, right, you know? <laughs> and, um, so, yeah, it was just very cool to, to get to go home and do some of the work there, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And we also went to South Africa as part of that diaspora project, which was very cool as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm there with this group of mainly African-American, um, you know, there were other folk too, but we were greeted by um, the wife of Oliver Tambo, who was, you know, um, right-hand man to um, Nelson Mandela. And um, okay. yeah, she sort of met us in this, ho- we, we had like a reception in the hotel the night we got there and she just sort of said, welcome home. And it was, it was powerful, it was powerful, you know, for the African-Americans, but it was powerful for everybody in the room, you know, so. Wow. And then we had, we had the first day of meetings in the old parliament where, where blacks had not been allowed until a couple of years before that. This was 1999, I think, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, so that was a powerful moment. I, I, I certainly, um, you know, so I've got those kind of memories from the work that are, that are very good, you know. Okay. 
what um, what work is left to do um, in the responsible fatherhood field? I know that there's a lot of things we are doing, but I'm sure based on what you see and the work that you're involved in and the materials that we're creating, the people that you've met, the work that we've done, knowing that we have so much further to go. Um, if there's anything, what's left on the floor? What, what needs to be picked up and carried forward in the fatherhood space? That's a big question. Um, I mean, there's a lot, right? Um, it's certainly a stable funding stream. Mm. Um, it's a way of passing the baton and it's really encouraging to see more young people in the field now uh, and all the energy, you know, and that makes me old. That makes me feel old actually, you know, all this young energy and the social media work that I, you know, I, I don't get really involved in, but, um, so, and, and, and we're seeing, um, folk who've been in the field for a long while, like Hollis McLaughlin, who just stepped down, Pat Littlejohn, who just stepped down to South Carolina, you know, so being able to pass those batons so that the, the field carries on, the work carries on in, in all these spaces that it is, so we don't lose that work, but to continue building it in these newer spaces, you know, I. I just helped Andrew Friedberg um, write a product for the Clearinghouse where he's talking about um, program sustainability and the experiences of the um, the Father Project in um, St. Paul, Minnesota, and the Goodwill Easter Seals um, Fatherhood Project, and how COVID actually helped them have conversations with policymakers that they hadn't been able to have before because there was a different situation. Um, but, you know, being able to have those conversations with state funding sources so that state funding sources can have more permanent funding streams for fatherhood. So that, again, if you're working with families, you should be engaging fathers and there is funding for this. So, but until we have that, then, you know, the field is going to continue to go in stop, go fashion, right? You know, um, and we need, um, and, and you and I have had this talk a lot, you know, we need some certification in the fatherhood field so that you can say, okay, this is a good program. You know, the, the staff have been trained, they, they're using good materials. Um, so then it becomes a recommendation for funders to fund them. Um, yeah. yeah, that's some good stuff. Man, Nigel, thank you so much for sharing yourself with me. I'm sure I'm going to have you back on to talk about um, some of the things that we're creating and some areas of work that I want to talk about, but I really wanted this to be more personal and kind of hear your insight based on all that you've seen, you know, over the course of your career and, and, and how you um, see this space and what your perspective is on it. And so, um, you know, Nigel's been trying to retire for the last three years and I, I, I know some of his buttons, so I've been able to kind of you know, have this bag of encouragement on the side and I just pull a little bit out at a time and drop it on him and he stayed around. But um, I'm really, you know, trying hard to respect his 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 need to um, enjoy life and not be so bogged down and saving everybody else's life. So know that that's part of my mind, but um, there's this other part of me that's, you know, this institutional knowledge that you have and this work that we do and the fever and passion that we do it with. 
um, has to be demonstrated so that others walk into the field doing the same thing. And, and this doesn't become just a job for people um, that they come in with the passion to stick around and stay with it and to stick in it. Um, because there's so many lives, particularly children's lives, um, at stake um, f- of, because of the work that we do. Like I tell people all the time, this is not hard work. This is heart work. And if you don't have the heart for it, you can't do it. You know, step yeah. aside or do something else or do something else within it. But don't get deep into this. Um, and as soon as another position comes up in another space, you're gone and you've left a hole, you know, in a space that doesn't have the ability to move forward. So I thank you for um, being vigilant for the last 34 years and staying in the mix and, and, and finding that, you know, something was dragging you into this space and you listened to it hard enough to to uh, to uh, give in to it. Um, and, and, yeah, yeah. And, and it is. It's, it's that passion in the field. You know, that's what I said earlier. You know, it's. Um, I mean, obviously, you have to have an individual passion for it, but you feed off the passion of others, you know. Right. And that's how you know how to, how to push my buttons by talking about all these new ideas, because you know I can. Oh yeah, that that sounds interesting. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, I'm going to keep stepping away, but I know you're going to keep reeling me in for something. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I have no shortage of ideas, you know, because the space is so big, yeah. so many things that need to be yeah, done. Yeah. So I still have ideas that are unfolding and things that I'm thinking about and things that I think need to be done. I mean, I too, you talked about people like um, how um, as he uh, rest in peace and people like, you know, Pat Littlejohn and and, um, and Halbert Sullivan, I'm not Halbert Sullivan, um, Wallace McLaughlin um, and folks who are, you know, stepping away, you know, because it's time for them to, you know, live their lives with their grandchildren. Um, as I watch that, I labor with that. I worry about Fathers Incorporated. I worry about, you know, who's going to carry Fathers Incorporated as mm-hmm. big as this monster that I'm trying to build, like who was going to be able to come in here and continue to build that because I don't want it to implode on itself. It's got to continue yep. to you know, um, move forward. And so a lot of my thinking is around the whole sustainability piece and how do I diversify our funding and diversify um, our staff and bring in expertise and really ingrain ourselves in the areas of this work that are the areas that are most necessary to have stability. And so when you talk about credentializing is something that I've been thinking about for a long time, which is how do we begin to credentialize the work of the responsible fatherhood field? And more importantly, who is going to be the credentializer? Because that's the huge thing. It's not so much being able to create the credentializing system. A lot of it has to rely on the comfortability that people are gonna have with the person who's actually creating the certification. I think the same thing holds true with the association. The fatherhood field should have an association much like child support and all other disciplines of work have an independent association that allows everybody to come in and be able to contribute to create policy um, to create policy avenues and, and, and to be able to influence funding and all of those kinds of things as an association. But that association has to be built by somebody who's trusted by the field. 
And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, the question is, who is that going to be? You know, and when I think about myself, it's like, listen, I, people are like, you know, I'm like, no, I, I only could do, like right now, I only could do so much and my, <laughs> my plate is big. And so, but those things have to be done, you know, because to your point, until they are, you're not gonna have a cohesive collection of individuals and organizations and people in place to kind of carry this thing forward in the way that it needs to be um, carried. So again, I thank you, Nigel. Um, You are a blessing to all of us and uh, we're gonna hold on to you for as long as we can, but we're also gonna let you go um, too. And I'm probably gonna bring (laughs) you back uh, when it's that time to bring you go, to let you go and, and celebrate you and all that good stuff. Any last words? Or last words, not last words, lasting words. <laughs> lasting words, yeah. Well, this has been fun, Kenny. It's always, um, it's always a pleasure to, you know, feel your mind and feel your passion. And, um, you know, you, you fire me up more. So I, even when I'm pulling back, I'm going to be watching from the sidelines and um, enjoying what's going on, I'm sure. So, and... And I look forward to seeing more young people in the field and the, the field growing and, and, and maybe a way to recreate that real sort of um, alliance of fatherhood programs. You know, we tried to do it um, after Al Gore and the, the, um, the um, NPNFF, the National Practitioners Network of Fathers and Families, which was, you know, in theory, the way to bring everything together but it's it's always much harder than you know and, and there was some funding for that to start with so you need a bit of funding to do anything i guess but but then you're always going to get individual agendas and it's like okay we're going to work just bring you in and do a, just, i may even just have to bring you in and have you be a guest host for i am dad podcast when i can't do these things um you know a whole bunch of people <clears throat> and voices that need to be you know that need to be elevated and so i got to talk to you about possibly doing some some guests some guest shows and bringing some people in and talking about products and new research and things that are out there that would be interesting for people to kind of hear about let's talk about that you could do that in the comforts of your home and you can you know sit back you ain't got to think you ain't got to manage it we could do it just like we did those other podcasts where i just come on i hit the button and i sit back in conversation and i put them together so yep 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 no that that could be fun you know i I also thought, you know, it'd be a it'd be a cool project one day just to sort of tell the story of some of the key people in the field, you know. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, Absolutely. So, you know, but, yeah. yeah. Let's do that. Let's yeah. plan that. Thank you okay. so much, Nigel, again for being a host or being a host and guest, you know, of I Am That Podcast. <laughs> I'm your host as well. This is Nigel Van. Um, and we thank each and every last one of you for listening to Um, the podcast, continue to share it. Make sure you comment because that's also important for us as well to hear how you thought about the conversation, not just this one, but all of the previous conversations. Go to our Facebook page, I Am That Podcast, as well as our website, www.iamdadpodcast.com. Until next Sunday, same time, same place. Have a great week and God bless. Thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us. You've been listening to I Am Dad Podcast. We hope that you have been informed, encouraged you to think, or even inspired your heart for the love of dads. The conversation does not end here. Come back and join us next week. Same time, 
same place. Or you can continue the dialogue on our I Am Dad Facebook page. We also invite you to listen to past episodes, learn more about us, and keep up with special activities by visiting IamDadPodcast.com. That's IamDadPodcast.com. Until next time, I leave you with this reminder of manhood from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things.